Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy. And before we get started, I just want to make a quick announcement that for the first time ever, I am releasing my first online course, and it is the most comprehensive course that details exactly what to do, very, very practical, to build a thriving cash-based or private pay physical therapy practice all your own. And I know that we all get tired of seeing so many patients per hour or in times like this, we're not quite sure what we wanna do and what is gonna fit our life. So this course is designed to do exactly that, to help you create the business you want that is going to fit your life and your goals and your vision. It is called the Strictly Business Private Practice Mastermind. More details will be coming out this week, but if you want to be first in line to get those details, go to karenlitzy.com waitlist. The course will be limited. Enrollment will be limited on this first time around, so you definitely want to be on the waitlist so that you can sign up immediately. So again, you can go to karenlitzy.com slash waitlist. All right, now on to today's episode. I am so excited to have this woman on as a guest. I met her at WCPT in Geneva, met her in person. She's amazing. She is smart, brilliant, lovely, and she is Dr. Tracy Blake. Tracy is the only daughter of Trinidadian immigrants she and her youngest brother were raised in the multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-faith, working-class Toronto, Canada neighborhood of Rexdale on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, as well as the Anishinaabeg, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat peoples. Sport was a power source of connection and vehicle for connection, Throughout Tracy's upbringing, Tracy's desire to contribute to sport beyond the field of play motivated her clinical work with athletes from over 25 sports at the local, provincial, national, and international levels, as well as doctoral research focusing on pediatric sport-related concussion and physical activity. It remains the driving force behind her current work as a clinician, researcher, educator, editor, and author. In this episode... Tracy and I discuss the preventative and reactionary roles of physical therapists in sport, how to optimize the healthcare team's strengths to amplify the organizational mission, equity and shifting power dynamics between the athlete and clinician, COVID-19, and ethical considerations in sport. So a huge thanks to Tracy for sharing so much great information, and everyone enjoyed today's episode. Hi, Tracy. Welcome to the podcast. I am happy to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yes, and I'm so excited to get to speak with you one-on-one. I heard you speak at WCPT in Geneva last year, and I think I've told you this. It was one of my favorite sessions. 
and we can talk a little bit of the, about that session uh, later. We'll probably sort of weave it in as we go along here, but it was a great session at WCPT. And I'm really excited so to much. have you uh, on the podcast today to talk about the evolving role of physical therapy or physiotherapy in sport. So I'm just going to hand it off to you. And if you can kind of let us know what that role kind of maybe where we were and how it, you see it evolving and how it has evolved uh, up to this point. Yeah, so I think historically, physiotherapy or physical therapy, I'm Canadian, so I tend to use both. Um, historically in sport was seen as reactionary. So injury happens, enter physiotherapist from stage right. And I think over time, what has happened is that both from a clinician standpoint um, and an organization standpoint in sport, um, there has been a change in perspective with an increasing level of focus on primary injury prevention. And so what that has meant is physiotherapists are not only not not only responsible for their reactionary role, the rehabilitation, the remediation of injury, but also there has been a serious investment both in their time and in organizations' resources around preventing injuries from occurring at all. I think the other part of this is that part of the evolution has been in the team around the team. So in, historically speaking, there may have been a physical therapist, an athletic trainer, a doc. And that would sort of be the primary set of your team. Now more and more organizations are having um, maybe multiple therapists, strength and conditioning, uh, nutrition, dietitian, um, sports psychology. Other, other disciplines are involved in the team, which both alters the way in which we gather information, gather experience, the way we develop as practitioners and also the way in which we engage in our role and in our, in our competencies um, within a sport context. And I think that there's, there's sort of three arcs in which I see physiotherapy in sport, which is consultant. So in a consultant role, you may not be actually involved with front-facing athlete care at all. You might be making recommendations or talking to ownership or be brought in in special cases, for example, um, as a consult. Then you have external service providers. They might have more regular athlete contact, but they're not embedded in the daily training environment, which is the third aspect. Each one of those roles has a role to play in today's modern sport, particularly as you get into more resource abundant levels, your high performance, your Olympic level or professional level. Um, but the arc of change for each of them is going to be different. The arc of evolution is different. Um, and what that means for the practitioner and the profession will also be different. And so when we talk about those tiers, so let's say you, you sort of outlined consultant, uh, the external service provider, and those people who are really embedded with the team on a day-to-day -day basis. And when we're I, I, before we went on, you sort of used the example of the MBA example. So can you talk about that just to make that a little bit clearer? Yeah, so there was a time where, like if you were, the internet still existed, but maybe like online rosters and Googles weren't quite as 
quite as prevalent in our usage, but you wouldn't have been able to just go on and find a physical therapist listed on an MBA team. There might've been one a decade ago, maybe two. Um, and now, now in today's days and times, every MBA team has at least one and sometimes multiple that are working in, in various specialties within physical therapy. And so I think that that is also something to consider, right? So what exactly is your contribution to the team in the context of both your profession, which is a healthcare paradigm, and your occupation, which is in a performance paradigm in your sector? And so how do you reconcile those two in a way that allows you to contribute and to be of service. And I think, we I mentioned this to you as well, that I think that the only way to reconcile that in a way that is grounded and sustainable is to be really clear about what your specific mission is as a physical therapist, and then making sure that whatever role you're in, whatever tier you're in, in the incredibly fast-paced moving world of physio um, and in the fast-paced moving world of sport, that you're grounded to that regardless. It makes you more responsive and adaptive, particularly in these days and times where on top of the unpredictability of sport and the fast-paced moving of sports, we now overlay a global pandemic into that. And right. so you lose your footing. It's really easy to lose your footing in sport these days. And so if you are not grounded in something that is separate from your job professionally, it is very easy to lose your way. And especially now that there is no sport happening. Correct. While we're in the midst of this global pandemic, there is no sport happening. And mm -hmm. so I guess being very clear on what your mission is, does that then allow you to find other ways you can contribute to the team aside from direct, uh, we'll say patient care, athlete care, or direct overview of strength and conditioning uh, programs and things like that? Yeah, so, so then the question becomes is, how is a team still a team when they're not playing? So when the technical has been removed from you, what makes you a team? And then in that context, what is your role in maintaining that team, in contributing to that team? Mm -hmm. So I think when we were at World, um, at WCPT, when I had mentioned the idea of what is your mission, I had told people to think about it and you're not allowed to use the words rehabilitation, remediation, illness, or injury in whatever your mission statement is. The purpose from that at the time was that you are having conversations with people in sport who do not come from your healthcare background. So if you only use language that relates to healthcare in a remediatory way or in action, reactionary way, you're undervaluing what you do. And it, you also run the risk that that's not understood in the same way you intend it. Mm -hmm. It turns out that that actually works out in this case as well. Because now we've taken all of, all of the trappings or all of the preconceptions that come with our role have now been wiped away. Right. So what are you contributing to the team in this context? Are you, for example, as it somebody who is usually in the daily training environment, um, 
having a team that is sometimes centralized and sometimes decentralized, I made sure that I continue to talk to my team and do check-ins even when they're decentralized. So now we're decentralized longer than we would have been because the Olympics aren't happening, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? But their communication with me isn't somehow new. Smart. And then, so that's not everybody's option, but that right. is for me a way in which the relationships we've had were not based on strictly what was happening on court in the team context. So therefore the relationships are able to be sustainable when an earth shifting, history shifting thing is occurring. Absolutely. And, and I have a question for you. What, yeah. what is your mission statement without using remediation, mm -hmm. rehab, et yeah. cetera, et cetera? So my mission in sport specifically is the yes. optimization of health, function, and performance, whatever your age, stage, or field of play. Excellent. <laughs> I love it when people are prepared. Um, that was great. To be and clear, I think though. <laughs> it's very clear. I think that's very clear. It's short and sweet and to the point, and people get an idea of what your mission is and what your function is within that team setting. And mm -hmm. now let's talk about the team, but not so much the team that's on the court or on the field, but let's talk about the team around the team. So you yep. had mentioned you've got maybe a couple of physical therapists, uh, uh, the MD, the ATC, a sports psychologist, nutritionist, but let's talk about how the team around the team functions for the good of the team that's performing on the field, on the slope, on the court, et cetera. Right. Yeah, I think that there is, so my circumstances were particularly interesting in my current situation with Volleyball Canada in that I was brought in with the strength and conditioning coach halfway through a quad, like going into Olympic qualifiers, which is highly unusual. What we were very lucky with was that um, we had our conversation right out of the gate and we were of a mind, so to speak, philosophically in this way. Um, so we had our first conversation. I say lucky. I think our director of sports science, sports medicine, and innovation would say that he planned it this way because he hired both of us. <laughs> but um, we were lucky that we were philosophically aligned in both what we thought our jobs could be for the team in this setting and in this in this circumstance. And then it turns out how we worked together also worked quite well that way. So that becomes, I think, one of the first things is, what's your mission? Does it align with the people who you work with? That's the first thing. And then from that spot, how do you use your strengths of each of those team members to amplify what that organizational or team goal is? And then how can you also identify gaps in each other and fill those in? Because that's the thing, like people love to talk about their strengths to a team and what they can contribute with their strengths. They're less comfortable, particularly in sports, particularly in an environment that is bred on competition and winning and there can only be one. It is much harder to feel comfortable with vulnerability and opening up something that feels like a gap or a weakness or an area um, an area that you're not as confident in first and, and trust that somebody else will fill it without exploiting it. So I think both parts of those need to happen for a team to be both functional and that function to be sustainable for any length of time.
Yeah, and I think that's also where the learning happens, right? When you have that, that team of professionals around the team, I would think me as a, as a physiotherapist or as a physical therapist can learn so much from those other partners. Yeah, I agree. And I am, I'm a nerd. There's no getting around it. I love a learning moment. I love them all the time. I want to know everything. Um, and so for me, I feed on that. But that is not everyone's experience. And so what I've had to learn is timing mm. and approach and, and repetition, frankly. Being not just clear on my mission once, but clear on it over and over and over again. How do I express my mission in the big and small things that I do in a day so that I'm consistent and I'm transparent? So that at no point somebody can be like, well, you said that at the beginning, but you did this and this and this that was inconsistent with that. And so I went my own way. And so in those kinds of circumstances, I'll be like, look, this is where I was coming from with this. This is why I thought it made sense. I went to a school where, um, when I say school, like entry-level physio training, mm -hmm. was at a school where um, we didn't have traditional lectures very much. Almost everything was small group learning. And so I feel like that environment really fostered the way that I work in the team environment in sport, where everybody had the same questions. We all went off and found the information and came, information, excuse me, and came back to it with our own uh, whatever that information is, plus our own experience and perspective layered in on it. And then mm -hmm. you figured out together what was useful, what was not. Nice. Well, that's, that <laughs> definitely set you up for being part of a team. That's for sure. Um, yeah. And now let's, let's talk about, so we, let me go back here. So we spoke yeah. about kind of the different tiers that maybe a physiotherapist might be in how being part of the team is so important to understanding your mission, staying true to that. And I think being self-aware enough to know that you're being true to that mission and that you can stand by it and back it up. And now let's talk about how does all of this that we just spoke about, mm -hmm. what are the implications of that for athlete health and for support in sport? So for me, the cornerstone of every relationship, but particularly in the context of sport, is trust. I work in sport, obviously, but I also work in acute inpatient healthcare, and I also worked in private practice for a long time. And people often assume that my private practice life, my private practice orthopedics, and my sport life are the two that are most closely aligned. And particularly in recent years, I've corrected that. And then I actually think it's my hospital life in acute care and my sport life, particularly in high performance, that are the most aligned. And the reason why is the relationship building and the communication that, that, that they require. So when I'm working with an athlete, the way in which I can get the best out of that athlete is if they trust that I'm working to the same goal they're working to. Now, that does not mean that I don't care about health, right? Because sport is inherently a risky situation, right? There's a level of risk acceptance that you have to have to participate in them, particularly Absolutely. if the levels get higher. 
And I believe there was an article by Caroline Bowling, it's a couple of years old now, that actually talked about injury definition and asked high performance athletes, coaches, and sport physios. And in that article, all injury was, was negative effect on performance. There's no mention of risk. There's actually no mention of illness or injury. So if I can't have a conversation with you about what I think the injury is doing to affect your performance negatively, I'm only filling in half the picture. Mm -hmm. So I need you to trust me and the way in which I, I, I garner that trust, the way in which I build that trust is making sure that you always know that I have your goal, which is performance in mind. And so I think that, that component of the relationship is the cornerstone. What cannot be left out of it, however, is the role of equity and the power dynamics. Physio is a health profession. Health professions historically are in a position of power or a position of privilege in the context of your practitioner-patient relationship, right? Mm-hmm. If that's the situation already to start, how can you know that the person is giving you the accurate information if they're already in a position where the power is shifted out of their favor? So knowing that and understanding that concept, I've tried to be really intentional and again, really consistent in actively working to even the, even the scales. And how do you I, do that? Yeah. So I regularly consistently ask athletes, not just what they think, but I start with the part that they know the most about. Because as it turns out, I've never played professional volleyball. I've never played any sports at a high level. (laughs) Right? Right. So if I start with the part that they know the most about, the technical component about, the way that training happens, the way practices are organized, if I start with what they know, and ask questions about that. And then I work the way in which I build a program back from that. What I often say to people, not just athletes, but obviously this applies to athletes as well, is that I say, I know bodies, you know your body. And what we're trying to do is take what we know about those two things and put them together in a place that gets you to where you wanna go. And anything that you think I'm doing that either doesn't make sense for that for you, or that you think is working against that, you need to tell me early and often. And so that's the, that's the framework. That's a conversation that's happening like right away, first day. Mm. And then I give them opportunities to come back to that over and over. Not everyone communicates the same way. So you can't expect somebody to like, just be like, you spit out five minutes of like clinical decision-making information at them. And they're going to be like, yeah, uh-huh. Oh, on all the, by the way, this, this, that, and the third, right? That's not going to be how it happens all the time. So making sure that people have time to think about it, have time to reflect, have a place to come back to you. Some athletes want to break it down into small bite-sized pieces. Some athletes want to be like, just fix it. I don't want to talk about it. And that's also my responsibility to make sure all of those different types of personalities, those people with different relationships with their bodies, have the power and are emboldened to be able to say what they need to say to meet their goal. And so that's what, for me, that communication and relationship building part 
has to be the cornerstone because it's the only way we can get anything done with the kind of um, both the speed in which we need to get it done in the context of sport, but also in a sustained way. Because if someone keeps getting hurt, that is also not going to help anybody's situation, both from yeah. my job security or theirs. Right, right. Absolutely not. And so again, this kind of goes back to being part of the team. And so what I'm sensing is, and again, I feel like as therapists, we should all know this, but the team around the team also includes the team. Correct. You can't just have the team around the team making the discussions and these return to play decisions without involving the members of the team, without involving that athlete. Correct. And one of the things that I've found, I, I'm saying a lot of these things to be clear. I'm saying them now and it sounds zen, but I have found out most of these things through failure, to be clear. Well, I have of course. messed this up a million times over and have like it has brought me to where I am having this conversation today. But I just wanted to be clear that I did not like walk out of entry level physio with this knowledge on a smorgasbord. What? <laughs> I know. I know. Shocking. Shocking. What kind of program was this you went to again that didn't prepare you for high-level sport athletes? Shoddy is what it was. Um, That the idea that the idea that an athlete is an essential part to their healthcare team still is radical for many. And they they say it. But what happens is when that actually requires an actual power shift to make happen, it, it's hard for people. When it mm-hmm. actually requires them to let go of some of their power, if it requires them to acknowledge there is a moment in the process of programming, in the process of delivery, in the process of recovery, that they are not the expert in the room, it can be a blow. Particularly people who have spent, in our cases, years getting to that point. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, in several presentations I've seen and writings of, of Claire Ardern, I feel like she goes through this which, which, with such specificity and simplicity mm-hmm. that it makes you think, well, of course, kind of what you just said, like, For some people, it's a radical view that the athlete should take this big part in their recovery and their return to sport or in their health. But when you listen to folks like you or like Claire, it's like, well, yeah, it all of a sudden turns into a no-brainer. So where Mm -hmm. do you think that disconnect is with those people who still consider it a radical idea and the people who are on the other end who are like, well, of course they should be part of it? Some of it is experience. And so what I mean by that is not just like length of time experience, but I found that the, when everything's going well, it's going well, right? There is no impetus to change. There is no disruptor that actually acts to give you a moment to calibrate or recalibrate as you need. And so when I say experience, I mean, I've had instances where To be honest, I wasn't sure if it was going well. I wasn't sure. I was doing what I thought needed to be done. And I was doing what felt right again. I was aligning with the mission that I had because I didn't have any real world context in this specific sport or circumstance that I might have been in. 
and then something goes wrong. And you realize in the aftermath of that, whether it's an illness, whether it's an injury, whether it's something off court altogether, right? Whether it's a abuse and harassment situation, whether it's a boundary situation, whether it's a patient confidentiality situation, right? You realize when those things go sideways that that's where your, your power and your, your metal is tested professionally. And so I think that's one part of it. I think another part is um, there's a, there's ability to what they call it mission creep, right? Where over time you sort of like, this is what you think your mission is, but then you do a little of this and you do a little of this and mm-hmm. you do and next thing you know, you're far away from where you started. And I think that a lot of people think they're in service to the mission when in sometimes they actually end up in service to the business model. Mm. And particularly in sport, where the jobs, when I say sport, like high performance sport, professional sport, where the jobs are few, where the jobs are highly competitive. I don't Mm. think I've ever applied for a sport job that had less than 75 applicants and upwards of several hundred in some cases. Wow. Everybody wants that gig. And so people can sometimes get led by the, or creeped away from their mission by the instinct to do what is necessary to stay in the position rather than what is necessary to optimize the health function and performance of their athletes in my case. Well said. Well said. And now we have mentioned... Go ahead, sorry. Oh, go go ahead. What was that? No, I was just going to say that those two things, so having a situation where you've been tested and sometimes don't, aren't successful and and mission creep, um, those two things I think are maybe the the biggest ways that aren't just related to like personality. Mm-hmm. Like those are ways that things can be trained or modified. Those are like the modifiable things, I think. Great. And then, you know, we had said as we are recording this, we are in the middle of a the global COVID-19 pandemic. And mm-hmm. so there is no sport going on. And so to the best yeah. of your ability, and we're not asking you to be a, a, uh, a future teller here, but where, <laughs> what do you think will happen, the role of physiotherapy in sport and the medical teams in sport post-COVID global pandemic, whenever that might be? I don't know necessarily what will happen. What I hope happens is that all healthcare practitioners, but particularly physical therapists in our case, because I'm biased in that direction, mm-hmm. um, that they recognize their role in contribution to population health in the context of sport, to public health in the context of sport. We often think of sports as um, a bubble. And it is to a certain extent, but that bubble is manufactured. That means all parts of an athlete's existence 
are manufactured, right? All parts of what the athlete is provided with from a health perspective are manufactured. So if gaps are left in that, it's up to you as the person who's actually in the sport context to identify and try to remedy and resolve, right? It's deeply problematic for athletes to not have the same information that somebody who works in the public has. It's deeply problematic for athletes to not have access to labor rights. It's deeply problematic for athletes to not have be informed and be giving informed consent to participate in mass gatherings during a time of pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I also think there is a strong ethical quandary that comes with providing services to events that fly in the face of public health recommendations during times like this. And I've been on record with this. I said this a couple of weeks ago, I posted about it on Twitter, where there was a massive wrestling tournament happening. And I thought to myself, there's, it's wrestling, it's a combat sport. It can't happen. Like they literally would have no insurance if there was no medical, co no medical coverage provided. So if you didn't have medical coverage, the event couldn't happen. So how does medical coverage or, or physio coverage or what, or what have you happen against public health recommendations? We can't mm -hmm. continue to act in separation with each other. We need to view sport as part of population health. And then we need to make sure athletes and, and those in the sporting community are, are acting in accordance with the public health that the times demand as well. And I think that that, I think the, the Rudy Gobert situation was truly genuinely shocking for a lot of people. They were mm -hmm. unprepared at every level, not mm -hmm. just sports medicine and, and sport physical therapy. And so what I hope lingers for people is that we think about emergency action plans a lot, right? We think about how we're gonna get somebody off off the court in the case of an emergent issue on court? How are we preparing them for life in that same context? How are we preparing ourselves right. as professionals in that context? And I hope that those conversations, because it turns out you don't need to be in person for that. No, as it turns out, you don't. That. Yeah, uh, that people are reflecting on that now and that steps are being taken to improve both the gaps that are specific to the, the situation with the pandemic now, but also how do we identify these things going forward? Yeah. And I think some of that had already started to show its colors around issues of um, food insecurity, issues of education, issues of like the younger your players are coming in, um, are you providing appropriate development? I went to, as you know, I went to the uh, United Nations last year for mm -hmm. the Sporting Chance Forum, which is around sport and human rights. And last year, 2019, was the year of the child. And so there had been a special rapporteur, uh, report on the rights of the child and child exploitation and sales. There is an entire section dedicated to sport and how sport has been used as a vehicle for the exploitation of the child. 
And I think of things like that, like those are the kinds of gaps that now that you know that these kinds of gaps exist, now you know, you understand in a very real way. And it's kind of, it's telling in some kind of ways that it needs to strike so personally close to people's wallets and right. personal health. But now that we've had that touch, now that we've been exposed in this kind of way, can we continue to be proactive in the way we address other things going forward? That would be what I would hope to see. Well, and I think that's a, a very, I feel like a very doable hope. I don't think it's like a pie in the sky hope. I think all of those conversations can be had and hopefully can be had by everyone surrounding sports, not just the physiotherapists or just the medical team, but straight up to owners and and uh, players and everyone else in between. So Tracy, thank you so yeah, much I, for such a great conversation. Yeah, no, it's it's been great. And I think again, like physios are really well situated because you have physiotherapists who have really like have access to the player and have access to the coaching, the ownership, the administrative stakeholders. Mm -hmm. so they're well situated to be able to bring these things to light on both sides and be involved in those conversations, even if they don't have out an outright decision-making power. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah. Thanks for letting me have this chat. I appreciate it. Oh, it was great. Thank you so much. And then before we sign off here, I have one more question that I ask everyone. And mm -hmm. knowing what you know now and where you are in your life and in your career, what advice would you give to yourself as that fresh graduate straight out of physiotherapy school? Um, I would say that you need a mission early and you need to speak it into existence. It's not good enough to keep it in your head. You need to say it out loud to people and you need to get feedback from people on whether it's clear or not. And I also think that one of the things that I, I learned, I was, 36, almost 37, when I took my first dedicated health equity class. And I, it was a workshop. And in the beginning, she said, for some of you, this will be new information. And it was specifically targeted at health professionals, not just physio. And some of you would have learned this in, you know, your first year equity studies, first year gender studies kind of course. And after the weekend, where I slept for basically three days because of all the information floating in my head, I was like, there are 18-year-olds walking around with this in their yeah. brain. And so I think that if I could go back now, I'd be like, you need to start taking those courses early. You need to start embedding it into your thinking early. Um, and maybe you'll be better at being intentional about how you use it earlier. Excellent. Excellent advice. Now, where can people find you if they want to shoot you a question or they just want to say how great this episode was <laughs> um so i'm on i'm active on the twitter uh-huh so my twitter handle is at tracy a blake i'm not as active on the uh, on instagram my instagram's still private but if you shoot me a message i usually find it anyway so that also awesome. works same handle at tracy a blake Perfect. And just so everyone knows, we will have links to, uh, certainly to your Twitter at the show notes over at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So Tracy, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is a great conversation. Thank you so much. This is quite the podcast debut. I, I appreciate it. Anytime. And everyone, thanks so much for tuning in and listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. 
Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.